All right, I'm going to be speaking today uh, from Luke chapter 15, <clears throat> and really three of the, of the most popular parables out there, uh, and famous parables. Uh, Jesus is going to speak about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the, the prodigal son. Uh, and these parables have, over centuries, affected people positively, brought people positively to understand the kingdom of God. Uh, and so they, there are so many interesting things. Now, the, the interesting fact here as we begin the, to study this is that Jesus spoke about this because this became an, a personal attack on him uh, by the religious leaders of the day. They attacked Jesus because he was spending so much time uh, with the outcasts. He was sp spending so much time with the lost, and the Pharisees repudiated that. They didn't believe that that's how, you, that's how a, a rabbi or a great teacher ought to do it. Uh, they ridiculed Jesus. They ridiculed Christ for the time that he spent uh, with these people. Can we turn off that cell phone? I appreciate that. And so uh, in the first of these two parables uh, that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 15, the first of them, we're going we're to deal with uh, a lost coin uh, and a lost sheep. Uh, and the point of these, and what I want you to focus on, is the fact that God is representative of the person who is seeking the lost item. That's what this is about. Uh, God is the owner of the lost sheep. He's the shepherd. God is the owner of the lost co coin. And so you're getting a picture of how God seeks the lost. Now, this is important to me because there are people, good-hearted people, good, well-meaning people who theologically believe that God has predetermined who would be saved and who would not be saved. And so I would say to you to think about this, if in fact God had predetermined that factor, why would God spend the time that he's spending in these parables looking, actively looking for the lost coin, actively going out and getting the lost sheep? If it were all predetermined, if the die had been cast, that the lost will come automatically. Well, the point of it is, no, it doesn't happen automatically. God is out there. God is actively doing this. He's actively seeking uh, because God recognizes how valuable you are to him, even as you are lost. Uh, and so we're going to focus on these three parables today. So if you have your Bibles, begin with Luke 15, chapter 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that's the predicate, you see, for these three parables. This man welcomes sinners. How about that? Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, uh, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now let's stop and just focus on that. You, uh, what you see here is the heart of God. 
And that's what Jesus is telling you. This is the heart of God. When people tell you that God doesn't care about you, that God is harsh, that God is judgmental, this is the, this is the other side of it, and it's being told by the Son of God that God sees the lost sheep and will leave the 99 to go find the lost sheep. It means that in the mind of God, there is an active participation in bringing the lost back. God just doesn't sit there idly. He actively goes out to look for the lost. Now, what does it mean that he actively goes out for the lost? What it means is this, that he will use the available tools that he has to bring conviction to those who are outside of the will of God. Now, in this particular instance, a sheep doesn't get convicted, all right? Uh, a sheep is, is obviously not human. It doesn't have a human personality. Uh, a sheep just does whatever a sheep does normally. All right, and that's wander. All right, and yet God is depicted here as going out and looking and actively seeking and taking that sheep and bringing him back. This fills my heart with joy, really, because I know that there are so many people in my own family and, and connections that have not accepted God yet, not accepted, they believe in God, but they've not accepted Jesus. Well, this means that God is actively involved in that process. We pray for them. We ask God to deliver them. But I want to assure you that God hears those prayers, and this is how he operates. He's out there looking for the lost sheep. He hasn't forgotten that. He hasn't forgotten the sheep. And so he'll leave the 99 to go look for the one lost one. And listen what he says about what happens in heaven, which to me is, is so uplifting. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, all right, what does that mean? It means the 99 really still need to repent, all right, because we're, we have to be in a constant state of repentance. But the one that finally does repent, all right, the joy in heaven is enormous, enormous. What a great comfort this is to me, uh, to see the active nature of God. Uh, and, and so many times as we read parables, uh, we focus on, on the lost sinner and the action of the lost sinner. But here, God is really saying, Jesus is saying, look at God himself. Look what God does. Look how important the lost sheep is to God. And look what God will do. So continuing from our, our passage, continuing on, verse 8. Or suppose a woman uh, has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors uh, together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Rejoicing with the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, Here's the example. Here is God looking for an inanimate object. The coin can't repent. The coin can't confess. But Jesus is using it to show you the mind of the Father, that God will not allow the lost to just be lost, that God will actively go out and seek to bring the lost in. We don't talk about this enough. This is, this is the mind of God uh, the mind of God, uh, knowing that that's his creation, and he's not going to allow his creation to just walk away from him. 
This becomes important. Uh, this, is, this is why, to me, as I read the Bible, I, I come to the conclusion that God wants every single person in the world to be saved. I believe that. I believe he wants every single person in the world to be saved. And he gives you the free will to be able to be saved. He equips you for that. I do not believe that God predetermines who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved in his foreknowledge. And let's understand what that means. That means at the moment that he creates you, he knows what decisions you will make. But irrespective of knowing the decisions that you make, he still goes out to get you. When Jesus had the Last Supper and he took the sop, which was the place of honor, the, the, the document of honor uh, in the dinner, in the Last Supper, and gave it to Judas, gave it to Judas. Did Jesus know in his foreknowledge that, Jesus, that Judas would betray him? Of course. He's God. Yes. But why did he do that? Why did Jesus reach out to this person who had already determined to betray Christ. Why? Because God wants to give you every possible opportunity to repent. Right down to your last breath. And I would say this to you, that those of you who are praying for friends and family who have not come uh, to faith, keep praying. Keep praying because God will be there right to the end. Just think of that with Jesus himself giving Judas the sop at the very end of Judas's life, uh, and, and Judas repudiated it. You see the heart of God. Uh, this is so uplifting to me. And then God says there uh, that when that woman finds that coin, can you imagine going and pulling the house apart, lighting a lamp, looking for that coin? Why? Why? Because that one coin to God had great value. You understand it? That lost coin had great value. It didn't matter that he had nine other coins. That one coin had great value when he would do whatever he could to go and look for that lost coin. What a powerful image this is of how God looks at us uh, and how God sees us. And so I want to really affirm you uh, in your prayer life, affirm you as you're praying for family that have not come to faith, that God sees those prayers and God is there with you. Uh, and that here's the bottom line, we don't save anybody. So don't think that in some ways you failed because you couldn't get someone to come to faith. Ultimately, it's God one-on-one -on -one coming to bring these people to faith. God brings them to faith. God enters their life uh, and God convicts them. And now we come to the famous parable uh, about the prodigal son. Now, when dealing with a son, it's an entirely different situation from a sheep and a coin, because a sheep can't confess, a coin can't confess, they're inanimate objects, but you see how God looks at that. Now, now God represents the father in this story, and now you have a son who can confess, who can repent, and now you see the juxtaposition of the son with the father. All right, now you see that juxtaposition, and this becomes a very important uh, lesson for us, probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever spoke. And this is now in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. And now let's, let's just talk right there about that. Give me my share of the estate. Well, if you study uh, uh, history, you will find he had no right to that estate. You don't get a right to the father's estate until the father dies. How dare you? Think about it. How dare you in your impudence asking for your cut of what's my property when you're not entitled to it. But what you see there is the narcissistic heart of humanity. Narcissism. Me. Me. It's all about me. It's my stuff. What I need. Okay? And here it is, the perfect example of this. And this is the heart of humanity. All right? Give me my share. So he divided his property between them. And so this, this father did that. He, he relented and did that. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. If you were a Jew, and this parable is written for Jews, there was nothing more repudiating in your life than to be affiliated with pigs. You understand? We don't eat pigs. No offense, Ralph. Uh, but but the, 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 point, the point of it is we don't eat pigs. We don't associate with pigs, all right? And here he is, here he is, the guy who thought he was so in control of his life, so smart, now he's with the pigs, and he'd like to eat the food that the pigs with. He's wallowing with the pigs. I mean, what a powerful story in which God indicates to us what happens when we go out in our own way. We wind up being with pigs, all right? Figuratively, all right, being with pigs, our life is so reduced uh, to what God had intended for us that this is the natural way. You see, this is God telling you, this is what happens when you leave uh, the kingdom of God, when you walk away from the protection of the Father. Uh, and, and this is so important. It's so important for you to communicate this to your children and to your grandchildren, all right? There's no happy endings by doing your own thing, all right? I mean, I, I, I feel so bad when I see young children, you know, you know, teenagers deciding I can't stay in the house of my family. I got to go out. I got to do my own thing. I got to sow my wild oats. Well, let me tell you something. Be very careful of those oats that you're going to sow because some of the implications of those oats will last for centuries, for centuries. Reminds me of a story when my son was in, in college, uh, and I got a phone call one night from my son telling me that he and his roommate had decided to buy a monkey. And I said, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, BK and I have decided, we're looking right now on the internet, we're, we want to buy a monkey because we feel a monkey will be able to help us with chores uh, around the dorm. <laughs> talking about self-delusion. Right? And so I said to him, don't, do you have any idea what the lifespan of a monkey is? They live to be 50. This means you're going to be 70 years old, and you're going to be taking care of a monkey. 
Have you thought about it? Well, no, no, actually, no, you know, and we haven't thought about it. And that's the point of it. You see, there's a, a, a microcosm of how humanity works. Now, thank God he came to his senses. He didn't get the monkey, all right? And, he, and now he's a full-time pastor of a church. Thank you, Jesus. But the point of that is, is that we all have momentary issues of insanity, all right? All right? We all have these momentary issues. And so, yeah, a monkey is a good idea, except when you're 70 years old and you're still taking care of the monkey. Uh, and so that's the point of wild oats. That's the point of doing your own thing. You have no idea uh, how when you throw the, the rock into the pond, how the ripples go out and out and out and how they adversely affect our life. And so here he is. Here he is now begging to eat the pods that the, that the pigs eat. But no one gave him anything. And that's the other thing that, that you see here is, yes, the world loves me. The world loves me. They embrace me. My friends, I'm, you know, we don't hear the story here too much, but you can assume he didn't go out and do this on his own. I'm sure he had a bunch of guys. They probably were a little bit drunk when they decided to go out and do it. It seemed like a great idea. It's like the monkey. You know, what seems like a very good idea. And so they just say, let's go out. We'll go out. We'll have some fun. We'll sow some wild oats, right? And then what happens? Nobody is there at the end. At the end of the line, nobody's there. He was begging for the pods for the pigs, and they didn't even give him. There was nobody giving him that. You see how the world is, where it squeezes every bit of juice out of your life, uh, and you think they love you, and that you come to the conclusion that there is no love. Well, when he came to his senses, and I love that line where Jesus writes that, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Underline that verse. If you get nothing else out of what I'm going to say to you today, that verse is critical. Uh, because this is the essence of repentance. You understand? It requires an action component. It's not just self-reflection. It's not just sorrow. But repentance means going back to the person whom you sinned against and beg for forgiveness. And here he had sinned against the Father. He had, he had sinned against the Father. And so he's asking the Father, forgive me for what I've done. I've come to my senses. What I've done, I'm recognizing I'm starving to death. Uh, and, and I, I want to go back and tell you I've sinned uh, between you. I sinned against you in a, in a terrible way. I have no longer worthy to be called your son. That's repentance. Father, forgive me. I'm no longer worthy to be considered a child of God for what I've done. I beg you, Lord, to take me back, to forgive me, uh, and to be like one of your hired men. And it requires the action component. And so let me, re, let me re, re, really tell you how important it is to understand repentance. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Okay? There's no forgiveness without repentance, all right? And I don't care where you are, how many years you've been a Christian, how often you go to church. If you have done something wrong, 
uh, and have really gone against the will of God and sinned against someone, you must repent. You must actively repent. This has really been heavy on my heart as I've studied this issue. And one of the key examples of understanding repentance is Zacchaeus, all right? Zacchaeus, uh, because Zacchaeus, when he came to faith with Jesus Christ, as you know that, and Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today, which meant I'm visiting you personally, all right? I'm visiting you personally. And here he is, this tax collector who had spent a life defrauding people. What does he say? Does he make excuses? Well, you know, I'm, I'm weak. Uh, I was involved in a bad profession. I was involved with a lot of other bad people. It wasn't my idea, Jesus. I just had to go along. Yeah, I wasn't trying to really mess up with other people. It was the nature of the culture. Have you heard these kind of things? It was a cultural issue. I didn't have a bad mind. No! He didn't give him any excuses. What did he say? If I have taken from anyone, I will repay him immediately. And if I have defrauded someone, I will pay him back four times what I have defrauded. That's the standard. That's the biblical standard. Four times. Not one time, four times. What does that mean? It means this, that if you've slandered, if you've lied, if you've gossiped, if you defrauded, you have to get on your knees and ask God to forgive you. And as he forgives you, he convicts you. And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is that you reach out to the person who you've defrauded and you repay them four times. Four times. Now, some of you are saying, well, how, how does that work? Well, here's how it works. If you've defamed someone publicly, then you publicly have to apologize. In the same way you've damaged, you have to return and say, I'm wrong. Look, God doesn't fool around, folks. All right? God doesn't fool around. This is God speaking himself, speaking about the nature of this and what the prodigal son is experiencing. Now, here's the thing. Why do you think all of a sudden this young man comes to his senses? What happened? What happened? Did he call his father and tell him he was going to buy a monkey? <laughs> no, actually what happens is that God makes the phone call. God puts you in the pig pen. God puts you in a starving mode. God closes the doors around you. And as God closes the doors around you, and thank you, Jesus, for doing this, he's done it in my life, I'm sure he's done it in your life as well, where God constricts and he puts us in a point of time, he takes the two by four, and he hits us in the head. Now, it would be nice, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be nice if he just appeared in a vision in the night and says, John, think about where you are. You need to really reflect on this and change the direction of your life. And we get up in the morning and go, oh, yes, God, thank you, I'm good. But no, we don't like that. We don't like that. No, we want to go out and engage in these activities. We want to get out in the world and sow the wild oats. We want to get out there and do it, and he knows that. And so as he knows that, he knows that the only way you're going to come to your senses is to hit you in the head with a two-by-four, all right? And what was the two-by-four here? The pig pen. You had to be in the pig pen. You had to be starving. Now, you were begging for pig food, 
And that's when he came to his senses. You see, that's God reaching out in the Holy Spirit. And so that's the analogy here of just like the lost sheep, just like the lost coin, God reaching out. But now, disparately from the lost sheep, disparately from the lost coin, now there requires a repentance, a confession, a responsibility that God, please forgive me, I have done wrong. Uh, I, I, I have done wrong. And he went back to his father. That's the action component. Not merely repentance and confession, but going back to his father. Uh, and this is what's required. It's required in all of our lives. All of our lives. Continuing on with this story. But now, now he's going back. So he went up and got, went to his father. Verse 20, continuing on. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. <clears throat> he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That is your God. You understand? That's your God. This is from Christ himself telling you, that is your God. While he was a long way off, a long way off, meaning God saw him coming back. But God didn't wait for him to come all the way back. God saw his heart. He saw that he was moving forward to him. And so God embraces him and kissed him and loved him. Just the way we heard about the lost coin. Just the way we heard about the lost sheep. What a great story this is. This is why Jesus spent all that time with the sinners and the lost this is what God did. This is why God came to this world. He didn't come for people who were so-called religious, who were hypocrite. He came for the lost so that 2,000 years later we could study this and see what our God is like. And so the this, this son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now you see the true nature of confession and repentance, a brokenness in our heart a brokenness in our heart. Lord, forgive me. I, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Father, I cannot believe that you've saved me. I cannot believe that you embraced me knowing what I've done. And that's the nature of gratitude. And we've spoken about gratitude. That's the gratitude that should permeate your life every way. When, it, when you are getting up in the morning and you have a chance to worship God and read this, this scripture, you ought to be thanking God every moment of the day that he saved you. He knew what you were. You know where you were. You know where your hearts were. Look, some of us didn't go out into a wild country and wallow with pigs, but symbolically we've done our own thing. It's away from God. And I told you God's scorecard, all right, of the law, 100 is a perfect score, 99 is an F. 99 is an F, all right? Now, the world will never understand this, but you understand it because you know the nature of perfection, and God is perfect, and so anything short of perfection fails, and yet God wants to save us. He, God, God wants to call us, and so you see this incredible story of how God deals with the lost. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. God celebrates the return of the lost. That's how important you are to God. God looks at you and determines that you are important. 
even as you are lost. Every single creation of this world, in this world, has importance in the sight of God. And you see how when God finally, when they come back, and make no mistake about it, God was intricately involved in the return of this young man. God was involved. God helped to bring him back. God touched his heart. And I would say to you, as you understand that, uh, and from the Beatitudes, blessed is he that mourns, for he shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed is those that mourn, meaning those that have come to understand, Father, I am lost. I need a Savior. And God then gives you the very faith that allows you to come back. Because without God giving you that faith, you'd still be out there wallowing with pigs. I mean, this is such an, a significant story. Jesus is saying this to the Jewish elite to under, let them understand, this is why I came. This is why I spend time with sinners. This is the mind of God. God is not interested in those who don't think they need salvation, who think that they're already saved, who think they're already righteous. None are righteous. None are righteous. And until we get that through our thick heads, we're not going to really be everything that God wants us to be. And so you see this, this story where God is, is dealing uh, with this young man and teaching us uh, in a powerful way. Now, obviously, this is such a blessing to understand this. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that really this resonates with me is the, uh, the Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 6, which says, We all like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned on our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. This is the, the, the passage in Isaiah that prophetically speaks about Jesus. Jesus came because all of us have gone astray. All of us. Don't sit there and go, well, I'm glad that's not me. I never went astray. I was in church all my life. You were in church, but your mind was in Egypt. <laughs> Seriously, you know that. You don't confess to me. I'm irrelevant. It's God sees your heart. God knows your heart. Yeah, maybe your body was in church, but was your heart in church? Were you physically in church? And I would say I can speak for myself, and that was no, no. Even as I was the church organist, no. No, God came to terms with that so, that so that I understood that. No, because we've all gone astray. It's when we finally come to understand that we've all gone astray and that Jesus has come back to save us. Uh, and it becomes such an important, important point of understanding it. You know, one of the, one of the great lessons uh, uh, of repentance is also found in David, when David begs God uh, to forgive him. And that's found in Psalm 51, that great psalm of confession. Um, and uh, it's so powerful there because here he is, uh, after he sinned with Bathsheba, uh, a child is born uh, out of that uh, adulterous relationship. Uh, and, and here it is, he sinned against God. And now for 18 months, there will be no, no psalms. How do you like that? 18 months, God is shutting it down. He's not going to be able to prophesy. He's not going to be able to speak about the things of God because there are consequences, you understand? And so here he is now recognizing this, uh, and, and, and the words in this are, are so really poignant. 
It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look, this is the guy who would be in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. You understand? In the lineage of Jesus Christ. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, and this is it, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How about that? Against you, you only I have sinned. That's the nature of understanding confession and repentance. Forgive me, Father, for what I've done. Yes, I understand she was beautiful. Yes, you, you say you were innocent, but you went up on the rooftop. You knew where she was. You knew she was taking a, a shower and would be unclothed. You went there, and you went up there repeatedly. It wasn't just the first time. I'm sure it was day after day after day. You sinned because your heart was not right. And now you need to confess and repent. And that's really, that's the nature of what this is about. That's the nature of the prodigal son. And that's what God is teaching you here, that he loves you so much that he will do everything he can to go and get you and bring you back. They'll leave the 99 for the one. He'll abandon those other coins for the one because each one of those has value. And now for the prodigal son out there wallowing with pigs, to God wants him back because to God he has value. Now there are examples in scripture where there is not true repentance. Not true repentance. And I, and I point your attention to the Garden of Eden. All right? The Garden of Eden where sin really enters this world. And as you know, Adam and Eve fall. They violated the will of God. Uh, and, and so, you know, dev, the devil lied to him. Here it is. Oh, God told you not to eat from this one tree. Come on. He just didn't want you to be as smart as he is. You're smart. You're good. You understand dealing with the narcissism of humanity. And if you eat it, you surely will not die. You like that? There it is. You surely will not die. Genesis uh, 3, 4. Well, what were the excuses did they make? Eve, well, the snake made me do it. And Adam, my wife made me do it. There's no real confession. There's no brokenness. That's why they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. You understand? Do you think that if they got on their knees and begged God to forgive them, do you think God would not have forgiven them? I can assure you he would have. You're seeing the heart of God. But because they repudiated, they repudiated God, elevated themselves, looked to establish their, their own bona fides, they were thrown out of the, the, the Garden of Eden. And so the first step of conversion is recognition and repudiation of the lie. That's the first step, which is awakening to reality. Uh, and so this, this becomes important. And the second step here of the prodigal's conversion was an honest confession of true sin. The son had sinned. Now he had come to his senses. And he had come to his senses because of the intervention of God. All right? God doesn't leave you alone. That's what these parables tell you. Whether you're the one sheep that left or the coin that was lost or the prodigal son, God does not leave you alone. He will do everything within his power to bring you back. 
but only you can confess. Only you can repent. And I would say this, that to those people that refuse to confess and refuse to repent, what I say there is evil is still presiding. Evil is still presiding. I don't care whether it's a church, whether it's an organization, whether it's a Bible study, if, if in some ways that organization is involved in the perpetuation of evil and there is no repudiation of sin, God will not bless it. It's that simple. Oh, what are you saying? I'm saying what the Bible tells me. I'm saying what the Bible tells me. You see the importance uh, of confession and repentance. Uh, and so you see this, uh, and, and it, it brings you back 1,500 years before this where David is confessing uh, to God himself where he says, against you only, Father, against you only have, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is when you really recognize what it means to be a Christian. Because for a lot of us, and I'll put myself in that category before I really came to understand what God was doing with me, that if I've sinned or done something wrong, I will just say I've done it against another individual. You understand. Well, they, they were jerks too. They weren't good people. Yeah, maybe I did something wrong, but they deserved it. But you see what David says here, against you, against you only I have sinned. That's the nature of what this is about. It's a recognition that, yes, you may have committed this act against another human being, but in reality what you've done is you've sinned against God. You've sinned against God. And if you want to have the kind of life that God wants you to have, you have to get on your knees and repent. Father, forgive me. Father, deliver me. Father, wash me in every possible way. And finally, the, the third step in this conversion was a return to the Father, a return. Thinking alone didn't save him. Don't think, well, I'm just going to reflect here. I'm going to ref reflect. Yeah, I did some bad things. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, confession alone does not save you. Don't just think that the fact that you confessed it, that it's over with. You have to get back and return and walk and make it right. It requires a physical return to the Father, an actual return to the Father. What does that mean? It means to go back actually to the person who has been defrauded, who has been sinned against, and repay them four times. Oh, John, you're so strict. No, it's not John. It's God. Four times. I have to do everything within the will of God to make right what I did wrong. That's the responsibility that God lays on us. That's the responsibility of being a prodigal. That's the responsibility of having God call you and lift you up. He needed to turn around and seek God. And as you turn around and seek God, as you have this brokenness of spirit, as you're saying, Father, I, I beg you to forgive me, God sees you coming a long way off. He doesn't expect you to come back a million miles. You understand? He doesn't expect you to drag yourself on your stomach a million miles. He sees you coming back. He sees the brokenness of your spirit. And he reaches out across eternity and he saves you. He's done that for all of us, all of us. What a powerful representation of what this is about. And so to me, I really, this really has reflected strongly in my, in my life. And so 
we got the sad part about this, this, this parable is that the older son resents the prodigal coming back. He resents him. Well, who do you think the older son was? He's the Pharisee. That's the point of this. The older son repudiated it. How dare you? How dare you do this? And I want to read a few verses there, beginning with verse 28. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Boy, what love that is, huh? I've been slaving for you. Imagine speaking to God like that, your father, all right? Uh, and, and, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. What a sickening display of religious hypocrisy. What a sickening display of religiosity. And this is what the Pharisees were. They didn't understand that they were equally lost, that they were just as lost as the boy who went out with the pigs. They didn't understand it. My son, the father, said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the Pharisees would never understand it. Never understand it. But you understand it. You understand the nature of salvation. You understand what God has done for you. And so uh, as I bring this season to a, a close, there could be no more powerful representation of the heart of God than this last powerful, the prodigal son. is God reaching out for this lost young man who, who really w was full of narcissism, full of the world. I'm the smartest. I don't need you. I can do my own thing. And yet God... God says, yes, here's some rope. Go ahead. Show, show me. Show me what you think you can do without me. And we find out how lost we are without God. Oh, I thank God so much that he has saved me, that he has saved you, that he has given us the reality of what it means to be saved, that he has entered our lives, that he is a powerful part of our lives, that not one day should go by, that we don't thank him for saving us, that we don't thank him for being part of a community of, of believers. And here's your responsibility. Your responsibility is to study the scripture. Your responsibility is to pray. Your responsibility is to have fellowship with other Christians. Your responsibility is to go to church. And if you don't go to church, find a church. Find a place where you can be comfortable and have affiliation with a fellowship of other believers. That's where God wants you to be. That's the end of this prodigal son story. As he returned to the father, we also have to return to him. We have a responsibility, and the responsibility is to serve him and to pray with him and to lift others up and to reach out for the lost and to pray for the lost. I would say to you all, this is a, a powerful way to finish this season as God has delivered his edict for the rest of your life. And let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you for this message that you've given us. I thank you for the protection of this season. Father, I thank you for these dear people who come out week after week to study your world. And now, Lord, we understand what it means to be a prodigal. We understand what repentance is and what true confession is. And so, Father, I ask that each of us look at our hearts, 
Look at our lives. And if there is something not right there, that you reveal it to us. You convict us of that. And that we repent and repay four times what we have done wrong. Lord, I ask you to bless and protect this group of people. Be with them throughout the remaining months of this year until we can get together and see each other again. As we put all of this in Jesus' precious name, God bless you. Amen. God bless you all.